This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to the Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth, Fraser Nelson and the journalist and author Paul Mason. So this week, it looks like the war in Ukraine is turning. Ukraine has moved from the defensive to the offensive and the Americans have released intelligence that shows that the Russians are actually notably not doing as well as they thought they might do. So that raises the questions of how this war will end and the peace talks that might precede that. Can Ukraine drive a harder bargain now that its hand looks to be better dealt? Fraser, what do you think? What what, what are the possible options for the landing zone here? So, well, first of all, it's amazing how far the discussion has come. When Putin first invaded, people thought it would be over very quickly. Boris Johnson was basically advising Zelensky to get out. He was saying that Britain would help um, him form a government in exile. The implication being that the Russian tanks, that 40-mile-long column of them, would be in Kiev fairly soon and it would be game over. Well, now it's a very, very different story. The defeat of Russian forces by Ukraine forces is now a possibility. I put it no stronger than that. But we can certainly see the Russian military in a pretty bad state, shooting down its own planes, unable to move the tanks, taking, by some accounts, more more casualties in the few weeks of this war than we did throughout the decade-long invasion of Afghanistan. So we can now see these peace talks, first of all, working. But what has struck me, talking to people in Westminster recently, is that there is now a higher ambition for this. The higher ambition is that when peace is agreed, it's not agreed on Putin's normal terms. Putin normally, he's a past master at um, invading, say, Georgia, walked away with South Ossetia. You know, he he always walks away from his peace talks Mm. with something in his pocket, getting more power by persuading Europe that it's more hassle to engage him than it is to let him take what he wants. So he's got his little proxies in Moldova. If you look at the Minsk II agreements in um, 2015, he walked away from that, having basically loosened Ukraine's hold over its own eastern territories, let alone the um, Crimea ceded to the Russians. And it doesn't deter him from any future aggression either. Well, this is the whole point. It emboldens him. And it teaches him a logical lesson that might is right. But if you are the one going in there with the military and you are prepared to fight and people aren't prepared to challenge you, then you can pretty much saw off little parts of Europe. So it stands to reason if you take the whole of Ukraine... Maybe Europe wouldn't put up that much of a fight, a misjudgment on his part. But you can see how he arrived at this misjudgment, because we've been looking the other way for so long. If you look after the invasion of Crimea, for example, Britain left it to the French and the Germans to negotiate the Minsk Treaty. And Britain and America, they said, no, sorry. They literally said, sorry, this clashes with with D-Day celebrations. So we've got to be somewhere else. So can the French and Germans please handle this? (laughs) And the French and Germans just allowed, again, a win for Putin that made it very difficult for Ukraine to be governed as a country. Now, right now, Boris Johnson and those around him think that whatever happens, we cannot allow another Minsk-style settlement. There will be pressure on Zelensky to sign, to settle, Mm. and to perhaps to cede Putin something. That Britain is adamant that there should be no rewards for aggression. And this is a far more difficult conversation, because first of all, it's not up to us to tell Zelensky 
um, this is country. I mean, it's very easy for us to say, please keep fighting because yeah. it suits us if you do. It's Ukrainians who stand to lose their lives and Russians. But there's a very interesting moral question. And Zelensky himself thinks his allies are split. In his interview with The Economist this week, he divided his allies into those who want him to settle quickly, like Germany, for example, and those who want to see Russia militarily defeated, like the Poles, and those, he said, who want a long war, who want to use Ukraine as a swamp to weaken Russia, even at the cost of Ukrainian lives. Now, he didn't sound like he very much liked that option, mm. but that certainly is something that I've heard in Britain, that our options of containing Putin are quite small, really, but... If he manages to stay engrossed in a war that could last months or perhaps even years, then that might be the best single way of weakening him. Now, this is controversial, of course, because we'd be weakening Russia as well with the sanctions. But it opens a very interesting moral dilemma. What kind of peace, if any, should we be pushing for or encouraging the Ukrainians to push for Mm. if peace talks do come for that? Now, Paul, Jeremy Corbyn, when he was at the forefront of British politics, was often criticised for being too soft on authoritarian regimes around the world and in particular on Russia. What what do you think of this as someone who did support Corbyn's ascendancy, if if I can put it like that? What do you think that Ukraine should do out of this? Well, well, there were many of us within Corbynism who took a completely different view. And indeed, openly from the beginning, I was taking a very similar view to what Keir Starmer and Emily Thornberry did at the time, which is to, for example, over Skripal, to blame to, to blame Russia. And, and to, you know, I mean, to put not too fine a point on it, people like me have waged a long war against the influence of, of a pro-Putin left inside the British Labour movement, which I think we... We, I mean, it's a side issue, to be honest. We have won because the, those who are pro-Putin are isolated and, and detached, to be honest, from the, from the Labour movement right now. So just having said that, I mean, my, I was in Kiev until 24 hours before the war started. Um, I went as part of a left delegation to go and meet their civil society. We ended up actually inside the Ministry of Defence talking to um, military intelligence officials who basically said to us, quite interesting, that if Putin invades in two months' time and mobilises conscripts, he can occupy our country. If he invades now, he will force us into negotiations. Uh, and I think they were right. Uh, what surprised everybody is the Ukrainian army has just forced Russia, it seems, we're speaking on Friday afternoon, to vacate more or less the whole territory north of Kiev. And they're forcing them back in other parts of northeastern Ukraine. Now, I think there's too much at the moment. There's too much noise around Ukraine can win. Winning looks very different. Winning looks like re- reconquering uh, you know, Mariupol and taking back the uh, Kherson province south of east of the river uh, Dnieper. I think it'd be very difficult for them to do that. And therefore, this option that Fraser is talking about, that Boris Johnson holds out, of a long, bleeding war, which favours NATO's ability to defend its eastern flank, because it will deplete the Russian forces even further, demoralise them, make them fed up, is all very well for the West. But I think in the end, and I think you said this, Fraser, in your Telegraph article, in the end, it is for Zelensky to make the peace he can make with the armed, and that peace will be determined by how much armed force he has, the only thing that's going to allow the Ukrainian army to go back on the offensive with armour and with artillery, with the things you need, is if we start supplying them. And it doesn't look right now like NATO countries en masse are signed up to that. That's why it's such a double-edged sword, the idea of a long resistance. It doesn't suit the Kiev administration 
And it may not be something that NATO countries could actually sustain. Yeah. I mean, it brings to mind, I was trawling through Taiwanese media's coverage of the Ukraine war, and they, they have a phrase which is, Ukraine won't die, but Russia won't win. So this kind of stalemate situation. But James, do you think that, you know, we, we've talked about that is ultimately down to Zelensky, but do you think that there are Ukrainians, either in the country or outside of the country, who have been radicalised by this into a longer war to not appease Russia, essentially, because what we're talking about would be something like recognition of Crimea or separating of uh, Donbass regions. You know, a lot of Ukrainians might feel like that's unpalatable. I think there's a lot of reason why Zelensky always talks about a referendum on peace terms, because I think he knows that the public are in a more hawkish position than he is. And so they they, they essentially act as a kind of backstop to his demands, which is, look, look, I'm going to put this to a referendum and I won't be able to get terms like that through a referendum. I think there are two crucial points to make. One is, there should be no decision about Ukraine without Ukrainians in the room. There cannot be some kind of Yalta two where Putin sits down with, or Russian negotiators sit down with either US or European figures and basically agree on spheres of influence and the like. You know, that shouldn't happen morally. So no decisions about Ukraine without Ukrainians being involved. Secondly, I think on Paul's point, I think there is an interesting question here about how much you could have a coalition of the willing within NATO that could do more. I think if you look at the, the the joint expeditionary force, that group of countries the UK convenes, you know, the Bolts, the Eastern Europeans, they are prepared to do more, I think, in terms of the kind of weaponry being provided. I, I think Paul is right that you're going to have to provide the Ukrainians with artillery and armour if they're going to be able to actually take back territory. At the moment, what NATO has provided the Ukrainians with to great effect are, are tools to halt and slow down a Russian advance. They are inherently defensive weapons. They aren't the kind of weapons that you need to retake territory. So that's that question. Now, you saw with this whole issue of the Polish mix, the Poles don't want to do something where they can be detached from NATO. But I think what they really don't want to do is something where they can be detached from the US. So I think if, if you couldn't get unanimity in NATO about what to do, and I think, you know, that might well be possible because, you know, there are elections in Hungary this weekend. If Viktor Orban is re-elected, I think he could become more difficult. And, you know, there are obviously other countries in NATO which are which which, which don't think that necessarily continuing the war is sensible, you know, quick peace views, as Paul and Fraser touched on. If the Joint Expeditionary Force and the US could get together, then I think you could start supplying the Ukrainians with some more aggressive weaponry, perhaps, than other NATO countries are prepared to do. And, you know, with US backing, I think the Poles would be prepared to use some of the supply lines that are being used right now to, to send that weaponry into Ukraine. Well, but Fraser, what about the concern, which is why the Americans rejected that Pol- Polish mix offer, that this was just pretty much start World War Three by dragging NATO into it? Does that not overstep that mark if we start to supply offensive weaponry? I wouldn't really have said so. I mean, um, it's we're basically talking about helping the Ukrainians repel the Russians from their territory. Now, I would still regard that as defensive. To be honest, that that isn't particularly a dilemma, I don't think, right now. I mean, sure, you can say that we don't want any uh, NATO boots in Ukrainian territory, we don't want any NATO aircraft to be shooting down any Russian aircraft, because that, that would 
would escalate it. Mm. But I, I think that there is relative unity around that. Where there isn't so much unity is what we do after this. Mm. Because we do know, for example, um, do we think there's going to be regime change in Moscow? I've been struck by how few people, certainly I speak to in Westminster, think that's possible. It, there is an opinion poll in Russia, now, to the extent which anybody can believe Russian opinion polls, saying that Putin's approval rating has now jumped to a five-year high, that, they're, um, that the, 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 the sanctions, as can often be the case in sanctions, has rallied uh, opinion around Putin, and that even if he falls, because if you were to, even if an autocrat were to lose a campaign like this, it's a pretty bad look he might fall then he might be replaced with somebody just as bad because the regime in place in Moscow is basically a gangster kleptocratic state with a lot of people who stand to benefit from that system who would keep that system going if it wasn't with Putin so the difficult question is to work out if Zelensky let's say for the sake of argument he succeeds in kicking out every Russian from his country what happens then? He will have sent Putin homewards to think again. Now, that's a, a heroic victory. But then what does Russia do? Does Russia sit down, regroup, rethink, and then come back? Because I imagine that the, I mean, uh, that the sanctions will still be in place for as long as Putin is there. Mm. Perhaps not at the full strength, but certainly I, I can't see um, Europe rushing to reconnect itself with them to switch back on Nord Stream 2 pipeline anytime soon. So how do you solve a problem like Putin after this? Uh, other than weakening him in, in, in Ukraine, I am not aware of that many options that don't involve full-on sanctions on the Russian people. Now, I'd be interested to know what, what Paul thinks of that option, because I, I do have a problem with this, because mm. I think these 130 million Russians did absolutely not choose their situation. A lot of them are already on the poverty line. If we start to basically have an economic blockade of this country, we are looking at a lot of human misery. But then again, what's the alternative? Is it to keep on doing business with Russia and let Putin um, enrich himself and come back stronger? It's a moral dilemma, and I'm not quite sure where I stand on that. I'd be interested to know what, what, yeah. what Paul thinks. And Paul, let me bring you in. But first, also, there's like a real, real politique concern here, isn't there? Because after World War I, Germany was punished so much that it created conditions for World War II. So is there a risk of punishing Russia too much, even after Putin goes? Well, the, the, um, there is talk about getting him to pay reparations. I mean, the Ukrainians say that they've had $500 billion of, of damage. I don't think that's realistically going to happen. But I, I do think that the next five years of how we treat Russia are really quite important right. if we don't think that there's going to be a Navalny-type reformer who's going to come and take the Kremlin. Precisely. Paul? Well, um, what's happening... We don't know uh, in terms of uh, the, the Russian elite, but there's some pretty good uh, clear signs. What One is there's been a, a recent article by a, uh, someone with, claiming to have inside sources saying that the elite has solidified around Putin, that there's no chance in the short term of a palace coup, and that the people have for now solidified. However, to be going into that kind of downfall bunker mentality, I mean, the world, you know, stuff the world, we, we'll go on our own, we'll, 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 we'll reinvent our own iPads, our own Google. <laughs> uh, to be doing that while you're winning is not a good place to be in. I mean, because they are winning. So I think in terms of the end game, the West, 
Well, let's start from what is Putin's endgame. People who spent their lives studying Russia, better informed than me, tell me that the, Putin's endgame is not about Ukraine. It's about dividing the West. It's about neutralizing both NATO and the EU, turning Europe into a chessboard, forcing Biden to deal with Russia as a great power, as an equal. He's failed on that. He's failed to divide the West so far. And I think those of us who are keen on NATO as a defensive alliance need to recognise, take that as a win. But how we go on taking that as a win, I think we have to detach the peace that Zelensky forces on Putin. Let's hope he can force some kind of a peace on Putin. We detach that from our strategic resistance to Putin. I think the Western elites are at the very least where they weren't two months ago, which is that we we're going to have to contain this phenomenon of a ethno-nationalistic, aggressive Russia. I favour doing it by keeping the sanctions on the elite until Putin falls. I think, it, but in a way, I think Biden was right. And as a social democrat and the European social democracy, we, our tradition has never any problem with saying dictators must fall. So I think we keeping sanctions on Putin with the clear idea that you are now Assad. You will never be holidaying anywhere but Sochi. Your, your children will not be holidaying anywhere but, you know, the Black Sea coast. That's right. And I think then the question becomes, NATO is due to, in its Madrid summit in June, July, supposed to be having a new concept of what it's all about. Well, that's got to be a big rethink because it probably got to absorb Finland and Sweden. It's got to absorb a rearmed Germany that's now serious about defence, but, but with the emphasis on defence and not constant expansion. So I think there's got to be some real politics, some realism, some strategic realism inside NATO about what the limits of what it wants. And then politically, the final bit of it is to say to the Russian people, yes, there will be no repeat of the Yeltsin era. We're not going to come again and plunder your country, as, as the Western banks did. We want strategic co sort of coexistence with you, but just not with a guy ruling you who doesn't meet other people and sort of sucks out of his thumbs war aims that are crazed. Uh, we can't coexist with a country like that. But what if whoever replaces Putin is just as bad or worse from presumably the Russian elite now? Even if they were, the process of getting there would, would be a shake-up, wouldn't it? The process of getting there would be a scramble for power within the, the, olig the oligarchs. See, the oligarchs are very much out of it, aren't they? They, they are, they, they've got no power. I would, I'd rather deal with a committee of six guys who run oil companies than one person who doesn't meet anybody. Mm. And, and, you know, judging he's rational in the sense that he is a rational player, but it's, it's in his playbook to act irrationally and also non-communicatively. The biggest problem we have right now, those of us trying to make sense of it, is we cannot work out how, which is, what is Maskirovka and what is real. Uh, and at least if we could have a, a, a rational agent in the Kremlin that were giving clear signals about what they want, that might be better than this guy. James, is this where Western disunity starts? Because Zelensky identified different camps in the West about this peace deal, this question. So where, do, where does the West go from here? I think there is going to be a tension about what kind of weaponry you send to Ukraine. I mean, that, you know, you've seen Macron saying that tanks are a red line. It's quite clear that the British would like to start would like to see tanks starting to move across the border into Ukraine. I think tanks are slightly different and easier than planes. The issue with planes are if you flew planes from a NATO airbase 
into Ukraine. They may well be shot down as soon as they enter Ukrainian territory. What happens if they struck a NATO air? You know, all that stuff. The tanks are easier because you can bring them in on the same supply routes that you're bringing in right. the other weaponry. And because Russia has made very limited, uh, has a very limited presence anywhere in Western Ukraine, you can be relatively confident you can do that without the Russians having the intelligence to actually hit these convoys as, as they bring the stuff in. I, I think on Ukraine... I think Ukraine is going to accept neutrality. I think Zelensky has made clear that, you know, it's not going to join NATO. But the best guarantor, short of NATO membership, the best guarantor of Ukraine's security is a highly trained and highly equipped military. And I think what the West have got to do once a peace deal is signed is they've got to make sure that the Ukrainian military becomes so strong that Putin or any future Russian leader knows that any invasion of Ukraine you know, it, it is not going to be the kind of cakewalk that Putin assumed that this would be. And, you know, that would offer Ukraine its, its own protection. Because ultimately, all these talk of security guarantees and the like, they don't get round the fact that because of the fact that Russia is a nuclear armed state and because of the escalatory risks, any foreign security guarantee to Ukraine is not going to be a kind of concrete 100% thing. The best guarantee of Ukraine security is Ukraine itself having a military that is so formidable in, in, in terms of its ability to repel an invasion that the Russians think it would not be sensible to risk it. So, Nick, would you mind me just jumping in? Yeah. Just on one thing, because as a journalist, I've been talking to as many sources as I can on, on this question of arming. If we sent tanks, they would have to be Soviet-style. They would have to be T-72s from, from, from the inventory of Poland and and other former Warsaw Pact countries, because what you're dealing with are systems. You know, the, a tank battalion or a brigade is is basically a communications network, and and it all has to work together. I think even if you rolled some Polish T-72s across the border, they, it would take them weeks to become operational, and that's the problem. In a way, we've probably reached the limits. So the ones in people in the West who say you know tanks are a red line. Another way of looking at it is you. It's bang for bucks. You reach the limit of what what combat power you can give to Ukraine without turning it into a Western-style army with a completely networked Western satellite-linked AWACS-empowered you know armed force. And you're not going to get there the other side of a, a ceasefire and a long period of rebuilding. So there is logic to the kind of Macron position, sad though that might be. Mm. Paul, James and Fraser, thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> 